Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rudeutchen. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today we're at 5 Carlos Place in London where I'm speaking to Samuel Ross, the founder of the label A Cold Wall. A protégé of Virgil Abloh, in just a few seasons, the East London-based designer, who grew up in Northamptonshire, has become one of the most exciting names in men's fashion. We spoke about the journey that led him to where he is today, what it's like being part of the Virgil and Kanye West community, and his ambitions for the next few years. So you, like, you um, probably into the health food thing then? Yeah, I, it's um, it's an, it's a long-term, ongoing relationship I have with food and uh, health. When I'm in the country for around a fortnight or more, it becomes my default way of operating. So I'll be sleeping, ideally by like 10 p.m. and I wake up at 5 p.m. and I have this extremely like collated calendar. So wake up 5 a.m. 5:15, glass of hot water. 5.30, run until 6.15, 6.15 to 6.40, I will read um, and just catch up on news and whatnot. And then from 6.45 to 7.30 is uh, team recaps for a cold wall, concrete objects, polyphene optics and ACW Nike. Um, and it just kind of leads on in a very, uh, very much um, timely manner because I'm learning control is so important when it comes to scheduling you know is that just because you're a really organized person or is it because you're so busy that you have to be like that well it's a mixture of both before the birth of my daughter I was able to freeform my entire when was she born she was born December 25th (laughs) uh, 2017 so before the birth of Genesis I was able to freeform the entirety of my calendar it was completely fine I could just work 22 hour days 20 hour days no issue but of course now I need to balance uh, my family life with my work uh, BMF so having such an organized schedule actually helps you know a lot and what when you talk about your work BMF that's because you've got quite a few things running yes. at the same time haven't you so yes. tell me a bit about all the different labels or offshoot labels that you're sure. doing now so the primary uh, label and main driving force is a cold wall which I self-funded and founded in 2015. Um, last year we accepted and, uh, and partnered with Tomorrow Holdings Limited, who are um, also in, uh, well, really their own by Renzo Rosa, which is brilliant to have um, such strong affiliates and a, a wider family to the label. And that now has a team of uh, 18 people, roughly. We're based in 180 Strand in London, and that's really grown. So of course that takes a lot of time off me. And a cold wall's positioning has really moved in, into luxury. It sits perfectly between this uh, this mediator, or me being the mediator, and a cold wall being the uh, the signal that's sent out between um, you know contemporary working class subculture and um, I'd say the more upper middle class sophistications of uh, art and sculpture and, and architecture. Um, and of course, as it's grown, its price point has increased. Um, this year, I was listed as a LVMH finalist and an Andam finalist, as well as a 
you know, being listed as a BFA nomination for Best New Contemporary Menswear brand in December. So it's grown and exalted wow. quite quickly. Yeah. With that happening, to ensure that I still have a really, like, I'd say true relationship with the, uh, the kids and the early supporters of the brand, I started Polyphene Optics. So Polyphene Optics is the sister brand to a Cold Wall and, you know, Jersey and Nylon starts from around £45 at retail and tops out at around £350. Distribution is very tight for Polyphene and it's um, really much more of like a cultural osmosis um, that ensures, you know, my spirit stays in both spheres, which for me has become quite natural. Aside from a Cold Wall and Polyphene Optics, there's Concrete Objects. So Concrete Objects is a... Um, a homewares and sculptural brand that I started with a close friend um, named Joe Burns, and we've uh, we've got some nice collaborations in the in the the pipeline for that, including um, Daniel Arsham and um, Futura, the contemporary artist, as well as just uh, collaborating with uh, Suikoke, the Japanese sandal brand, and it's very much uh, more so about a wider ethos on design living outside of the uh, wardrobe, and that takes form in you know concrete and resin uh, incense burners um, abstracted cups that, that you know uh, reference Rachel Whiteread and, and Anthony Caro um, these are the primary projects I have alongside of the three businesses that I own I have a label with um, Nike which is uh, a Cold War times Nike and we are you know preparing to uh, finished the last quarter of this year in a really strong way which no one's quite aware of yet but we're looking forward to doing so and outside of that I have just completed my third season for my brand line with Oakley which is technical outerwear and it's literally Oakley by Samuel Ross and we just launched that collection last week so these are you know five to six um, organisms are keeping me quite busy and that's where the scheduling comes in and you've got a toddler. Yeah, yes. Crazy. On top of that yeah. as well. Who's amazing, by the way. Oh. Um, so this podcast um, focuses on five things. Yes. Because we're at Five Carlos Place. I should say we're recording at Five Carlos Place in May 3rd today. Um, so I was wondering, what was the first thing that you wanted to talk about? I think the first thing I'd like to talk about is... Um, it's not really... It, it is a thing, but it's more so... It was a government allowance that was given to working class young adults and that was the EMA allowance under the Labour Party. And without that allowance, um, you know, coming from a quite a working class background, although very educated, um, I wouldn't have been able to actually travel and commute to my local college, which in turn, you know, really blossomed my career. So this was in Northampton where This was in Northamptonshire, yeah. yeah. So I grew up in I was born in Brixton but I moved to Wellingborough. And I went to college in Northamptonshire at Booth Lane. And um, I majored in uh, graphic design as a sole uh, course. And of course, without the EMA, I wouldn't be able to get there. And it was really, um, you know, being able to focus under an artistic discipline, um, something ticked in my brain that um, communication can be just as powerful in a non-verbal uh, format. And that's where design for me really flourished, and it's quite a personal one um, because I, you know, I've seen my parents struggle quite a bit, um, 
having to sell things and whatnot to be able to get me and my sister through Yeah, because your education. parents were quite... Your dad was at Central St. Martin's. Yeah, so he, he, he yeah. actually graduated with a, a first-class degree in fine art in Central Martin's, and he made... Well, he specialised in stained glass restoration windows across the UK um, for around 25 years, and he's just um, relocated to Barbados, where he's also continuing that up. And my mother at the time, she... Um, now, I'll start with where she is now. She's now a sociology and psychologist tutor and lecturer and teacher within Northamptonshire University in Northampton um, uh, Private School Moulton, I believe. And um, at the time, she didn't have any qualifications when we were coming up. So I've kind of seen them both really prioritise and, and push forward, um, you know, focus on education. And that's where, for me, why the EMA pass that £30 uh a week really um, changed my, my my life path, you know. And what brought you from, so you studied, you graduated from De Montfort University in Leicester. Yes. And then tell me a bit about the journey that took you from that point to then moving to London. Yeah, so um, I decided to actually study in De Montfort, Leicester. Firstly, they're, they're quite known for more industrial design and a few years earlier than that, my father actually completed his master's in industrial design and product development in De Montfort University, um, once we'd relocate to the Midlands, of course. So from there, I f it was more so a natural course where I'd seen um, the campus, I'd seen the energy that was there and the, the, the encouragement of creativity once again, led on by my parents, and I wanted to follow suit and study there. Um, and that really leads me on to my second point, which was, um, my dormitory room within Leicester uh, University really was a turning was point Was it in for halls me. of residence? It was in yeah. halls of residence, yeah. And, and to me, it seemed like a real luxury yeah. <laughs> experience and, and whatnot. And it was quite special because for the first time, you're out of a environment. Um, so you're not, you know, predisposed or necessarily uh, indoctrinated by local uh, happenings, whether those be, be good or bad. And... Uh, there was a real opportunity to have a wider scope of understanding, meeting individuals from across the world and individuals that were so passionate about design. I spent the majority of my time with my course leaders. I was really embedded into, you know, uh, design at this point. I'd just finished two years at Northampton What turned you on to design? You know what it was? It was um, my father being a painter, stained glass artist. He had a workshop connected to our house when we were growing up. So I'd always go into the workshop and he'd be obviously welding and cutting glass with lead and whatnot. So there was always this uh, this pull towards design. When I was a child, say seven to eight years old, I remember going to after school youth club and I'd sell my sketches for 20p, 30p for, for pick and mix sweets and whatnot. So there's always been this thread of um, having a relationship with the arts. It was more so as I began to get a bit older I'd say, well, old, I'd say 15 to 18, what happened was I was completely aware of the um, financial difficulties my family were going through. So I really felt I couldn't afford to be an artist. Um, it was too much of a luxury to just chase my own narrative. I need to find the midpoint between the arts and, if, and commerce and design for me is slap bang in, in the middle. It, of course, it's more so much more servitude, but you still have the opportunity to uh, manipulate the uh, the end result presented to a, a client or a consumer 
and I knew there was more money in design. So that's what really pushed me into design. If it wasn't for the, the financial circumstance, I probably would have been a, a fine artist or sculptor, to be fair. So you're, you, you were at De Montfort and then yes. tell me how you got to London. Oh yes, so what happened was I stayed in uh, De Montfort for three years and graduated and I was scouted just after my graduation by a, a company called Imperial Design and it was product design and graphic design but majority of the time it was commercial product design. So I was working there for a year and a half in Leicester and I really felt like I'd been, to be honest, swindled by <laughs> the educational system and what they had kind of pitched and, and touted me of how my career would go. I felt like it had come to quite a, an abrupt, uh, narrow pathway. And um, at this point, I'd always had uh, this feeling of I'm from London. I'd spend all my weekends here growing up and whatnot with my family in Brixton, Croydon, Strem, Howlston and whatnot. I just felt like I have a better opportunity of succeeding in this industry if I relocate back to London. Um, whilst this was happening, I was starting to think about relocating back to London. I was also operating under four different aliases. Um, I was in Leicester and I had a lot of time, so I, I could afford to be a painter and a street artist and go around at 2 a.m. So what, you, you mean literally you're a different name for each yeah. different so, occupation? Yes. So my painter and street artist name was known as Bitmap. Um, and then I was operating as a free uh, freelance uh, graphic designer. And I had a small t-shirt project, which was my first foray into retail. Um, and that was called 2WNT4, which is incredibly <laughs> obscured. <laughs> probably why that first endeavor didn't work out um, too well. And I also was producing um, you know, music at the time under a different alias. The name is too embarrassing. So oh, I, 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 oh no, I can't <laughs> go into that. People will Google. This is all still on YouTube. <laughs> and I was also making short experimental film under the same music alias. So I had four different occupations outside of my full-time job. So what happened is I, I now collated um, four different portfolios on four different websites. And um, I was researching how do I get out of this scenario and how can I, you know, really pursue my, my, my dreams. It's just quite youthful and naive at the time. I was about 20, 21. How can I get back to London to pursue these dreams? Because that's where ideation and cross-pollination is happening in this country and there's more money there in this field. So I started researching, um, you know, creative directors and videographers that I respected who had produced brilliant works I, that I had admired and wished to also contribute to. And who were those? That Did led you? me to, to Virgil Abloh, actually, oh, right. to be honest, who at the time, you know, was working as Kanye's creative director. And they were both at the apex, in my opinion, of like zeitgeist pop culture in regards to art and film during this period. So I wanted to connect um, with, with Virgil, of course, and I tried to get through many ways and it didn't work out um, but what happened was he found me on Instagram we crossed paths and off of a um, an email dialogue I used that as fuel to join a design agency in London which then found me a higher paying job in the city with that I left my job in Leicester and moved down to London into my auntie's spare room in Croydon and that's how I got back to London Wow. Tell me a bit more about what Virgil's like. He's he's brilliant. He's um very focused. Um, what I really learned from Virgil is how to work, and you know that might come down to the scheduling I have in place now. But it's it's really about uh, 
honing a work ethic that is incredibly focused. Um, his intentions are very pure as well. He's very supportive to, to youth and to young talent, having known the difficulties of his own ascension. You know, um, he's just a very positive person, you know? How do you feel about what's happening at the moment with people of colour coming up in the fashion world and being awarded positions that have normally been the... Withheld or... Yeah. It's important. Um, It's the level ground. The ground is beginning to level, which is very exciting. Um, It's a big step forward for the the fashion industry as a whole. Um, And I think it's actually now moving quite quickly. Of course, there are some difficulties that, that we will need to still work on collectively as an industry. But I will say that the fashion industry is still one of the most progressive industries I've seen and worked in. Having worked in the product design industry, the graphic design industry, had normal warehouse jobs, high street jobs. I've worked in sales and the fashion industry is still the most forward thinking and progressive. Um, so I have nothing. Um, really but commendability on on what's happening you know and it is very exciting to you know know that opportunities are now um, fairly being given you know and, and encouraged I think is the word as well they're not just being given but they're really being encouraged by um, the industry by great groups such as LVMH and Carrion and the BFC they're encouraging this forward movement which is really important is it true you also worked for Kanye's Yeezy label? Yeah, so basically I worked under Virgil and under Donda. So Donda at the time umbrellaed numerous projects and brands and that was from Yeezy uh, season one to Yeezus tour merch to Kanye APC um, to design developments. Um, we would, Virgil and I would work on for Hood by Air to Bean Trill um, to Pyrex before Off-White even came around. So there was this whole uh, really micro group uh, of uh, brilliant labels and companies that I was able to you know, work with, some directly and, and some through um, other individuals. Um, for example, we were producing a lot of album artwork for great artists and singers like Theophilus London uh, and whatnot. So it's a very um, tight group of people who were doing a lot um, at a very fast pace, you know, and I think that's why the group has stayed quite tight um, because it's really a case of like iron sharpens iron steel, sharpens steel. Um, and if you couldn't keep up with the pack, then you would be dropped off, you know. What do you think is the influence that your the group you're talking about has had on fashion at the moment in terms of an aesthetic? I think there's a um, a freedom in the expression that we've tried to introduce quite naturally. You know, there's almost uh, it feels quite liberal, really, what we're trying to bring in to the the fashion world. And I think that's happened in a very organic way. For example, showing off calendar at first um, instantly becomes anti-establishment, which of course is associated with with many. Um, great past endeavours of subcultures. I think my my group of contemporaries are bringing a, uh, a sense of liberation 
to well not necessarily bringing because it already has liberation has already existed in fashion uh, before the, the generation of phase we're in but we're we're bringing a new strain of that liberation into play and i think that comes from having quite strong roots um, embedded within counterculture and those tendencies are being brought into the way we communicate with our consumer and with retailers so for example the idea of off-season selling and events um, really echoes ideals of anti-establishment which in turn um, becomes quite enticing for the uh, the buyers you know whether it be direct consumer or the retailers to work with and it definitely brings a, a new dynamic working with individuals rather than you know large companies there's a reactiveness that we definitely all hold um, in the way that we operate whether that be through installation art whether that be through uh, moving locations or even you know all of us having a strong background in design for example um, Virgil has a, a master's and a degree in civil engineering and architecture myself in graphic design and contemporary illustration moving on to product design uh, Heron studying at Parsons University um, KW um, of course being awarded uh, honorary degrees in art and design in Chicago our reference point and ideation uh, you know starts from an understanding of communication in design whether that be visual whether it be sculptural whether that be um, spatial design or sonic design uh, or graphic design that's where it, it begins and I feel that really adds a you know uh, a new uh, a new finish um, that's been really well accepted actually into the wider fashion industry what is the third object that you wanted to talk about okay so the third object I would like to talk about is my um, my first blank t-shirt purchase for my first t-shirt label when I was 18 years old and um, that was really for me a point of crossover when I realized that visual communication can be such a uh, you know it can have such a uh, a strong energetic tie towards fashion communication it was simply printing a logo I developed onto a black t-shirt um, but I, I noticed that it it seemed to um, bring a level of energy from the end user uh, that ne that wasn't necessarily there before when I was operating off off of clothing so for example when you develop a, a brand identity for a company um, the level of excitement or value isn't the same as when you develop even a piece of jersey with a logo on it to the end user there's not the, the level of respect that's often reciprocated from the end user isn't the same and having access even in the most you know uh, ground level point with this graphic blank t-shirt um, I became addicted to being able to hyper-communicate graphics and garments simultaneously at the same time. Uh, and of course the t-shirt is important because that was the only uh, access I had to a garment at, at that point. I couldn't afford, let alone I didn't know how to make clothes at the age of 18. I didn't go through fashion school. My background was in industrial and product and graphic design. 
So it really, for me, represents uh, the beginning of a new path, almost steering out of industrial design practices and more into the fashion scope. And um, it really felt quite liberating to be able to, to do so, you know, to pair initial skills I had and put them into a new world and context um, that I entered quite blindly and from a pure perspective. There was never an intent to, hey, let's make a, uh, a T-shirt to make lots of money. It's more so, I have this idea that may sit well on garments. Why don't I try it out? And uh, from there, it just became something I kept doing. I kept printing these T-shirts again and again and again. And of course, the T-shirt led me three years down the line to my first cut and sew factory in Leytonstone, which led me to my second cut and sew factory in Tottenham which led me uh, on fabric hunts across Italy and Portugal with um, my business partner and good friend, Andrew Harper, um, which then led us, you know, uh, to cross paths with Virgil and other great minds, which led us into our first runway show, which led us into our first Nike show, all stemming from that one blank T-shirt, which I bought for, say, one ninety nine. So you founded a Cold Wall in 2015? Yes. How did you meet Andrew? I met Andrew in university. So I met Andrew when I was uh, 18 years old and we had a mutual friend from back home. Um, although Andrew's from North London and I, I grew up in Northamptonshire, there are uh, a lot of individuals who had um, been pushed out of uh, the London sphere. So let's talk about what's, what's the meaning of the, the name? A Cold, a cold wall. wall. Okay, so the meaning of a Cold Wall um, stemmed from really it's the name of a case study that I put together over the course of a year and a half um, and I would traveled uh, Europe primarily and been to New York once or twice after working under a great group of contemporaries who I've mentioned prior and I'd noticed there was this zeitgeist moment happening with, uh, throughout North America and uh, it was being imported into Europe through Paris and Italy through Fashion Weeks and they were talking about this 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 gap between high well, streetwear, which was still to be defined at the time, and high fashion. And I came back to Northamptonshire with an intent to add to that story, to add to that dialogue, but from an intrinsically British standpoint, taking what I'd lived through, the subcultures, experiences, uh, and the people and their narratives, and embedding it into the story. So the name of Cold War came about from um, living in this working class neighborhood, but having transcended out of that class system through the likes of education. And therefore my surroundings had gone from, you know, Pebble Dash council estates and red brick uh, Victorian and Edwardian terraces to, uh, you know, spending more time uh, congregating in the National Gallery or, or the Tate Modern, um, you know, starting to build relationships with friends from artistic backgrounds who lived in, say, uh, Islington or central London, and, and their surroundings were closer to, to alabaster and marble and more precious stones. So really a cold wall uh, became a theory based on how do you communicate between the brutalist or Victorian red brick, brick pebble dash landscape, um, the intensities of those environments and, and the, the endearing figures um, that often you know live in these environments how do you build that relationship or communicate London's melting pot culture 
which really is summarized through a red brick or council estate being on one road and two roads up having this marble slab property with its own narratives how do you cross pollinate and communicate between the two and i feel like my life's story has been that cross pollination um, so a cold war really summarized is one individual in the working class area physically touching their surroundings and that being uh, equally as valuable as uh, the woman or gentleman in, in the upper middle class area touching their surroundings so it, it's really a uh, a, uh, a, it's really a social study summarized through materials. That's the, there's no short answer mm. to yeah. what does a cold war mean, um, but that's how I'd summarize it. And you just touched on class there, and I yeah. know that's something you've spoken about quite extensively in previous interviews. Um, is that something that you still feel is relevant to your work now that you are, that you, you are becoming, becoming successful? I think it's um, it's incredibly relevant to my work. I feel like the first three years, two and a half years of a Cold War have really been about um, finding new ways to um, collate and um, almost siphon the intensity of working class experience in this country and culture through clothing. Uh, with a lens that hasn't been placed on that before in a in a respectful or truly understood way and I the easiest way to put it is I, as I feel like I come from the sand pit um, I'm the one to kind of crawl through the sand to explain um, the sedimentary experience as before I feel brands maybe have looked in like from above onto the sand pit and only picked up a you know, the, the flat linear 2D version, not the 4D uh, experiential version. So to circle back to do I feel like um, that has now affected my relationship with like working class culture now that a Cold War is becoming more successful. I don't think it has. Um, and I say that due to the fact there hasn't been, in my opinion, a working class hero in fashion since uh, the late McQueen. Um, and it's very important that that dialogue is told in the correct way, in a respectful way, and, and that narrative is uh, presented in a way that isn't, you know, um, just a fetish or some type of a sneered look, you know. So I, I don't think there is an issue with a Cold War becoming more successful and still talking about uh, the working class uh, realities of this world, because if I don't speak about them, I don't think anyone can at this point. I'm sure someone after me will come and they will have their own experiences and lens and new way of communicating. But during this era, I feel like I am the chosen one to communicate this this message. What else are we going to put in, which other object are we going to put into the cabinet at Five Carlos Place? I'd say my first MacBook Pro. It's, it's a similar, there's starting to be a thread here of, these objects or moments I'm mentioning, they all offer opportunity and they offer freedom and a wider scope um, to ideate and create. And the MacBook Pro um, really enabled me to work across a multitude of fields from sound design to, to film and video, um, 
to of course having a more honed idea on how to work on CAD for fashion. You know, it, it really became a my, my my toolbox for a while and um survived many journeys across the world with me, was repaired multiple times and without that specific machine that I purchased um when I was twenty years old. I don't know if I'd have the same career I have now. It was so key and integral. That was that machine was a limb to me. You know, before things got incredibly hectic and busy, and before these businesses established, um, in the the London underground scene, I was part of the music and fashion scene. People would always see me with a huge um, tote bag that I'd made and it would just have this laptop in. I'd be known for working in the middle of the club with my laptop or at any dinner meeting. Like it was really a, a part of my body and also part of my work and it represents um, the midpoint in between the two. You know, it represents um, the extension of myself and my work is represented in that, that MacBook. Yeah, and speaking of digital connectivity, yeah. um, I also was thinking about how you communicate with an audience mm -hmm. and how that's changed. The relationship between a designer and their audience has changed massively since the advent of social media. Um, Virgil Abloh is very famous mm -hmm. for communicating with his um, audience through Instagram constantly. And I was wondering how you relate to your audience and if you use social media a lot um, and how that all works. I do use social media a lot. I'm probably addicted to social media, but I think it's it's not a bad thing in this day and age when you can commute so uh, not commute communicate so directly um, with an audience and with uh, likely people people you're likely to get on with. And I feel that when it comes to social media, you know myself and the team on the call all specifically have often tried to structure content, and we find that people always are more receptive to organic content. It's, it's often not always the glossy image that people want. Um, and when they see something that feels a lot more organic and textured, that's when you have that connectivity with people. And, and I definitely really feel in this day and age when everything is so becoming so synthetic with social media, um, which is key to our new way of communicating, that there are still these tinges of humanity um, through easy communication for example um, at the moment I've got this practice in place on my Instagram stories where I refuse to type um, any type of point I put down I have to write it by hand and then post it up and it's, it's the idea that there is a sacrilege in holding on to basic forms of communication that are imperfect it's, it feels very wabby-sabby in essence you know like the imperfections make it perfect and in this day and age the imperfections that we show on social media now are becoming actually more celebrated than the synthetic um, carbon perfection that aesthetically is perfect but doesn't necessarily connect. You know, so for me, social media and connecting with my, my followers and, and the culture I'm part of, um, I'm finding being as organic with them as possible is what really works and stimulates people you know and how what's the what's the difference with between that form of communication and the more traditional form of 
um, communication that legacy publishers use, like magazines and advertising or a profile in a magazine, print magazine, do you think that carries um, the same weight of importance or do you think it's just all about the direct communication of um, social media now? Well, I, I believe it's incredibly important. Print uh, is there to be remembered and to highlight incredibly important moments. What magazines do you, do you read magazines? Yeah, I read Days, I read ID, I read System. I read a lot of books more than I read magazines, to be fair. So I read a lot of Yuval Harari, his books, Homo Sapiens and Homo Deus is great. Uh, I'm just, I just finished reading uh, Mastery by Robert Greene. Um, what else am I reading? I've just finished reading The Prince by Machiavelli as well, which is a brilliant book. And I'm also reading, I'm reading about four books at a time at the moment. I can't remember the last one, it'll, it'll come back to me. But um, I really have a respect for print and even words in books and the fact that it is physical. The issue with social media is that it's a slipstream of endless content. Therefore, it's very hard to archive or to remember if content just exists in that format. It's incredibly important for impulse and for reactivity um, and it, it does feel closer to a conversation. A brand can have a conversation with a user that feels much more organic and that is of value. But there is something to be said about keeping a library of important information that one can go back to. And print, for me, is the epitome of that, which is why I prefer to read magazines and physical books rather than You sell a than book e on your yes. website. Yeah, I, well, we put together a 250-page book and that was really the first three years archived into print. And it comes back down to the idea of, of legacy uh, and library and, and documentation. And there's something about, you know, uh, producing an idea that is that has a physical format now that, for me, feels so much of value. Um, and that, that brings me the same excitement of when I, you know, progressed from working on solely digital formats as a graphic designer, moving into product design and then fashion design. There's something exciting about having a tangible object and print uh, in-house that we produce and print that I consume and digest from external publishers for me is very exciting for that reason. I wanted to talk also about the fabrics that you use. Yes. Um, whether you have a consciousness towards the environment and sustainability and the, um, but also the quality of the fabric, um, where they're made. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that since you've had the investment, you've changed where you have the um, clothes produced. Yes, it's been huge for us because, you know, up until the investment, um, I had the ideas, but I didn't have, um, I had a, I have a brilliant team, but we just needed more help. You know, we were, before the investment, we were always in this factory in Leytonstone trying to push these quite radical ideas and we just didn't, the factory didn't have the facility to ideate those ideas for us. Like we didn't have the legacy seamstress from Givenchy. Um, we, we didn't have the master pattern cutter who, who could go over my patterns and tell me what was wrong with it. We were really uh, in it producing these pieces, but um, we had a lack of resource. It was very difficult to tell a technical fabric story when all you can access is ATZ fabrics on Goldhawk Lane, which are brilliant, by the way. I've spent a lot of time there. But we were at a point where the brand needed to grow. It had gone from an art project into a business that now had, say, 25 to 30 retailers. So it was beginning to slowly mature. And with Tomorrow Holdings, um, you know, 
insight, experience, and belief in a Cold War. Stefano and uh, Giancarlo and Paul, they really understood what what could be with a Cold War and where it could sit in a modern landscape, and they were able to, uh, you know, support. So now I travel at least once a month to Italy or Portugal where we source our, our fabrics and we work with mills on customised dyes, dyes what, and whatnot. What kind of fabrics do you like to work oh, with? Well, for me, I have a real affinity for, for nylon, and that comes from, you know, being part of a subculture that grew up almost like revering technical fabrics in clothing, whether it be from Nike or Adidas. It was such a... Uh, it's like within one class system, the subculture, there were tears in that, and nylon was always a revered fabric. I have an affinity and love for jersey, but I love jersey for how it can be manipulated, how it can be fused, bondaged, um, re-stitched, and also re-dyed. You know, at the moment, I have a real thing for cotton polyester blends, uh, and, and, and just manipulating the type of speckle that comes from dyeing, especially hand dyeing, um, which was a trait and still is a trait of a cold war, which really was birthed from a lack of resource. The first two collections in a cold war between 2015 and 16, I hand dyed every single piece and also hand painted every single piece. And these, of course, grew into stylistic traits for the uh, mid and core offering and entry offerings for the brand. but they really came from hardship and having to think slightly out of the box. Now with the investment and the access to uh, you know, nylon mills throughout Italy and, and Portugal, I'm able, I'm able to really focus on the, um, more so the outerwear story, which existed in the beginning, but of course requires a lot of finance to, to push forward and facilitate. When it comes to environmental issues, I'm battling with it and it's something I'm trying to like work towards changing I'm not gonna you know sit here and just say the right thing like we have it all now and all is well because it's a whole issue as we know the wider scope of the fashion industry is dealing with and we have to adapt very quickly because it's it's important so I'm now speaking to um, one company in particular who uh, recycle plastic waste that's found in the uh, Atlantic Ocean and then spin that into nylon fabrics. We haven't, you know, sealed a deal with them yet, but there's there's a dialogue on how that type of uh, fabric can be brought into the wider scope of a Cold War. For me, it's not enough. Well, it's a start, I, I would say, to have like one product in that category, but I wish to really implement renewable materials into the brand outside of just a flavor of the month approach. It needs to be uh, sustained within the business as well and we'll, Andrew and I are working at that now finding ways to implement that from say uh, January to February next year that's a goal we've put in place what's your fifth and final object it's, I'd say it's an object uh, that represents travel and I would say my fifth and final object is my train ticket to Paris for my first ever fashion week when I was 22 years old. And um, this is the first time I met Virgil and the Donda team in person. I was assisting at a Kanye Kanye APC season two presentation. And I also assisted on Hood by Air campaign shoot that was shot in Rick Owens' apartment 
and um, it was such a crossover culturally in many spectrums coming from working class Britain um, to this melting pot in Paris which it's an organism really it's not even a melting pot it's an organism that permeates um, North American culture European culture British culture in one place and being able to contribute and witness um, great minds both in fashion and music culture overlay and you know uh, weave these ideas through fabric um, there was nothing like it I can't really put it into words it was so experiential what was it like being in Rick Owen's apartment <laughs> well I actually walked into the room and at this point I'm just the intern um, so I came in the room and the Hood by Air team was shooting and styling a model and I pretty much said hey I'm here to help you guys I've been sent here and they just stared at me and looked away <laughs> so it was so like you felt a, really important yeah it was a real like fashion hierarchy type, type of moment but you need to go through these things yeah. like they've worked so hard to get to that point <laughs> now being on the other yeah. side I get it um but there were a lot of moments on that trip that really stood out to me that I'll never forget. It was my first ever fashion week and it wasn't just about the clothes, it was about the culture and the opulence and, and the belief in ideas. And what I often find is that fashion week is a real place where expressive free minds still exist in wider society. And there aren't many other industries that encourage that behavior which is so key, you know, um, to finding out who one is and to spreading forward, to spreading the idea of, you know, new ways of thinking and communicating, not just through clothes, but using, you know, uh, these uh, calendars and schedules as a real um, platform to communicate to macro culture. You know, it, an individual doesn't get many opportunities to do so but fashion weeks really facilitate the idea of wider communication and that is incredibly uh to me quite it's quite sacred actually it's quite a sacred opportunity to be able to speak quite widely and i'm um um ebbing and flowing between my first fashion week experience and that but now also uh performing at fashion week with runway shows and being on both sides is it's incredibly nourishing you know so you've got your you know you're doing really well with your work um you have investment you personally you've got um a small daughter yeah and you've just you know you've got a you live in east london and everything sounds like it's just amazing and what's what's next i feel for me next um i mean long term well there's two things the first plan i have in the next year and a half is to have a mono store for a cold wall it's time to cement it physically as going back to the, the book and digital concept. Of course, we have amazing doors, but I'm, I'm very much looking forward to taking the brand to the next step and the next layer. And I feel that, you know, a mono store would really complement the brand's reference points to brutalism and architecture and sculpture quite, quite well. Outside where, where, would, where would be an ideal place to have a, a store? You've got your eye on any buildings. I do, but I won't disclose you. <laughs> watch this space? Yes, watch, watch yeah. this space. And um, in terms of long term, I can see myself working closely with art galleries. Uh, I've started to, well, I have great relationships 
with artists such as Murakami, who I've produced custom pieces for, Daniel Arsham, uh, just a week and a half ago actually for his Peritin gallery, uh, his 13th gallery exhibition, I produced some custom garments, which we actually painted together as a piece of performance art. As I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a performance art uh, and garment piece with uh, Futura as well as well as um, having great rapports with artists such as Tom Sachs. I just really fit with the art community very well, and very naturally. So I could potentially see myself moving into a sculpture over the next five to 10 years. I'm, I'm really focusing on uh, how sculpture can uh, also have a relationship and be reflected further in clothing. You know, that's what I see as a long-term plan. Although you ask me what's next, I'm still thinking next is like, five to ten years now you know it's, I'm also thinking the long term that's great thank you so much thank for coming for on the me. show I appreciate that that was an episode of the collector's house a matches fashion podcast you can find more episodes and more about five Carlos place on the matches fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at matches fashion and the hashtag five Carlos place. Thanks for listening.